Welcome. It's Christmas Eve. It's nighttime. The presents will soon be opened. I've been interested in talking to people. Um, you know, the, our musicians and, and singers have been here all day, really, so I've had a chance to talk to a few of them about how their family celebrates Christmas. And it's Every family has their own traditions, but one thing for sure that we all have in common, a tremendous amount of preparation goes into celebrating Christmas. Some of those things are pleasant, some of those things are not so pleasant. I found myself in Walmart a few hours ago. <laughs> Give you a guess which category I'm placing that in. I'd like you to think a little bit about what you've done to prep, prepare for Christmas. If you're not ready, it's too late already. So just relax, <laughs> enjoy, it'll be fun, it'll be good, it'll be blessed. And if you can think a little bit about all the different things and things that a family does, maybe your role, mine's pretty small, actually. My wife will tell you my role in this, all these preparations is pretty minuscule. But if you've got someone next to you you can talk to, if you don't, don't worry about it. Just look straight ahead for 30 seconds and this awkward part will be over. Uh, just turn to, your, turn to your neighbor, some, maybe if you came with someone, and tell them what's your best, your, your most favorite part and your least favorite part of preparing to celebrate Christmas every year. Best and least favorite part. Ready? Go. Talk among yourselves. All right, all right, come on back, come on back. I want to know what the laughter was about. That happened at 3 o'clock, too. We are some two millennia after the first Christmas. What we're celebrating tonight with all the human traditions and stories that gather around the historical Christmas event We've all made preparations, but have you ever asked yourself what God did to prepare for the first, the original Christmas, for the birth of His Son in the world? I asked myself that question a few years ago as I prepared for Christmas at this church. I started looking through my Bible and was absolutely amazed, even though I've read the Bible for most of my life, I was amazed at all the different things that God put in motion hundreds and thousands of years, things that are written down in the Bible and many things that occurred in church and human history that are not written down in the Bible that the Bible doesn't address. Once I got the scope of everything that God had done to prepare for the first Christmas, it made me realize that our family's preparations, great or small, are just a little tiny pale reflection of everything the Father did to put the first Christmas in motion. Tonight I'd like to read a little part of the Bible that you may not be accustomed to hearing as part of the Christmas story. It doesn't tell the earthly story. You're probably familiar with that. Because this was the Son of God, a virgin woman, miraculously, she couldn't believe it either, neither could her fiancé, Joseph, she gave birth. Lowly shepherds who were probably still smelling of the sheep and the wineskins were the first to gather around the baby. 
And they looked with admiration that God had kept His promise in their time. That familiar story that you'll find on many, many Christmas cards, that's the earthly point of view of what God was doing in beginning the first Christmas. I want to read to you a portion of the Bible that is actually a Christmas text. It's an explanation of Christmas to some of the very first Christians in a little Roman province, modern-day Turkey, that they called in that day Galatia. In just a few words, and Paul, this skeptical former Pharisee who didn't believe a word of it, in fact, before becoming a Christian, he dedicated his religious and professional life to persecuting Christians. He thought the Christian story, as some people still believe today, was a great hoax and was actually going to destroy his people until he met Jesus for himself, and he made a 180, and he, like all the first disciples, spent the rest of his life telling the Christmas story, telling the good news of Jesus. And in the middle of all of that journeying and preaching and sharing and talking, Paul wrote a letter to this these series of churches in this province called Galatia. And this is what he told them that God was doing to prepare for the first Christmas. There's quite a bit here. It's just a few verses, but there's quite a bit here. You'll notice, especially in the second half of the reading, the language gets pretty dense, pretty substantive. It uses words that are almost unknown to us, like under the law and redemption. I'll take a minute to explain those things, but first I want to read this to you. And then I want you to read it with me. Paul wrote these Christians in Galatia regarding what God did for Christmas. Paul explained it like this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. That's Christmas. That's the birth of Jesus. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, he tells them, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Did you read that with me? Just three verses from the Bible. Let's read it together. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son." And if a son, then an heir through God. We'll start. It makes sense to start in the beginning. Paul said that everything in the Christmas story happened when the fullness of time had come. Now, that little phrase is bursting with meaning. What Paul is telling you is that what God was doing in the first Christmas is he was keeping a promise. See, I've got a Bible here on this pulpit, and it's, it's a little thicker than most because of the way they printed it, but this, this Bible, like every Bible, is such a big book that it intimidates a lot of people. 
You open up the table of contents and you see name after name after name after name. You thumb through it and you realize that it's not just a single book, it's actually 66 books. And if you were to dig a little further, you'd find out that the people who know this book really well would tell you it was originally written in three different languages, three separate cultures. 1,400 years it took to write the Bible. The Bible came together in 1,400 years in three different languages, written by about 40 different authors. Now, if you and I could put together a trillion-dollar foundation that assured that a committee would keep the writing going for 1,400 years, and at the end of the 1,400 years, the final group would put the book together, do you think that book would make much sense? We can't keep the Star Wars chronology straight, folks, and that all happened. Those movies all happened in our lifetime. The astonishing thing about the Bible is, even across 1,400 years of authorship in three different languages and 40 different people from every kind of walk imaginable, it tells one cohesive, coherent story. It tells the story of Jesus. Jesus himself said that everything in the Bible pointed forward to him. Paul understood that eventually when he met Jesus, and that's why he said that the God sent his son when the fullness of time had come. God was keeping a promise. If you go back into this Bible and you start reading the promises that are made about Jesus, you'll discover something about biblical prophecy. It is incredibly specific. It's not like some of the stuff you see in the grocery store line with vague language that it might be anything or anybody. It might be George Bush or it might be Kanye West. There's absolutely no way of telling what that very vague language is referring to. The Bible prophecies are not like that. They name the town that Jesus would be born in. They narrate the specifics of his birth. They tell about his life. They go into these kind of specifics. Before the crucifixion was invented, passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah speak in detail of the nature of Jesus' death, right down to the people he would be crucified with and what sort of grave would receive his dead body. It's startling. It's accurate. It's specific. You might find yourself having the experience eventually if you look into this that Lee Strobel did. Lee Strobel was a legal journalist in Chicago. He had no use for God. In fact, he was a self-professed atheist, but he kept meeting in Christians who seemed like intelligent people aside from the, uh, this startling fact that they believed this old story. And when Strobel's life started to get tough, he started to look for answers beyond what he thought he already knew. He became a Christian, and eventually he became a pastor and a very well-known Christian author who wrote a, wrote a book called The Case for Christ, basically recounting everything he learned about how many promises God kept when He gave His Son to the world. That's the first thing that God was doing. He was keeping a promise. Paul will say to another Christian church that in Jesus Christ, all the promises God made are yes. They're all kept in Him. See, God didn't start didn't send a movement. He sent a person. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. He was making preparations. He was keeping promises. 
Someone did the math. In fact, a local mathematician named Peter Stoner who used to teach at Pasadena City College. He's been dead for some time now. But he was a wonderful, brilliant mathematician, and he did the math somehow. This would not be anything that I could do. But he did the math of the probability of a person accidentally, randomly keeping even eight of the prophecies that the Bible specifically makes about Jesus. And Stoner, among others, calculates that the chances of just eight of those prophecies being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion. It's astronomical. See, that's why I was so disappointed hearing, I was listening to KFI driving around trying to get my mind off of Walmart and uh, the, things I, the things I saw and heard there. And I heard three guys talking about Christmas. And one of them, they all sounded very articulate and intelligent, and one was talking and, and talking a little bit about the Bible, and he said the saddest and most untrue thing. He said, you know, this all boils down to faith. There are no facts. It's just a matter of faith. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible puts promises in writing so that anyone who has a mind to can actually open up the book and read things that were written 700 and 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus and then investigate his life and discover to his amazement that they actually came true because God was keeping a promise. It's not all he was doing, though. If you step away from the Bible and examine the world around it, you'll discover that God was actually orchestrating enormous things like empires in the course of human history to make the arrival of His Son come at the most advantageous time so that the most people in the lifetime of Jesus and His first followers could hear the message of what God had done in human history. I'm talking about things like this. First came the Greek Empire until they were defeated by the Romans. In all of that time, the Jewish people were scattered. They had no temple everywhere. They were scattered in what became the Roman Empire. They had a hunger for God. And as the pagan society around them became more and more corrupt, they became more and more serious for the first time in a long time about hearing what God had said. And they started something that remains with us today that you and I call the synagogue. Every Saturday, Sabbath after Sabbath, the promises that God had made in the Hebrew Bible were read. And because the Greeks once ran the world, they were read in a common language that everybody understood because the Hebrew Bible for the first time in human history had been translated into Greek. And the Romans thought it was to their political advantage to guarantee religious freedom and to build these magnificent, safe roads. And you were free to believe anything you liked in the Roman Empire as long as you didn't cause Rome too much trouble. And that created an incredible environment where people who were tired of the paganism and the wickedness they saw all around them went into a surprising place like the synagogue and heard the Hebrew Scriptures read in Greek. And they saw men like Paul, of all people, opening up the Hebrew Scriptures he knew practically by heart, probably, and going line by line, passage by passage, book after book, pointing out to people, this is what God is doing. We are blessed to live in the time where God has kept His promises. So God not only kept a promise, He prepared the world in every possible way, spiritually, politically, culturally, linguistically, so that when His Son appeared, the message went everywhere. In one lifetime, the message of Jesus went from small towns 
in Roman-occupied Israel and swept across Europe. It went to Turkey and Africa, and it even went through the message of an apostle named Thomas. And Thomas gets such a bad rap. When we mention Thomas, people who've been in church put a little adjective in front of his name. What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. Do you know where Doubting Thomas ended up? India. You can go to India today. I've never been, but I've seen the pictures and seen monuments and memories built by Indians remembering that the Apostle Thomas apparently was among them, and he was the one who told them about Jesus, the doubter. How was the doubter so transformed? Why did he shed his blood? Why did he die telling people about Jesus? Because he believed it. He understood that God had prepared the world and kept His promise. In the full, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And this next part will be much more familiar. Jesus was born of woman. He was an actual human being. He was born amidst blood and water and joy and fear that things won't go quite right to wide-eyed kids whose knees probably... Bang together under the weight of that moment. He was a real human being because what God was doing was sending His Son to enter into our experience. And that was a good thing. And it says that Jesus was not only born of woman, He was also born under the law. And of all the things that this passage says, that might be the hardest to understand. What does it mean for someone to be born under the law? It's a reference to the law of God, which... Even if you've never read the Bible, I can assure you, you understand in your deepest, most innermost being because like every human being who has ever been born healthy and whole, you have a conscience. You have a sense of right and wrong. The Bible explains that our conscience is the law of God written on our hearts. It's really one of the most incredible things. Social scientists who have no room for God have a hard time understanding why people in all times, at all places, are not only moral, but they generally agree about the moral points. No one has ever thought that some guy hitting your kid sister in the face is a good thing. That has aroused human anger since there have been human beings. There is a moral code written on the human heart, and we walk under that law. We are born under it, and we live with it every day of our lives. In 2016, a lot of people will deal with the law that is in their heart by making New Year's resolutions. Do you remember your moral New Year's resolutions? I'm not talking about the stuff like paint the house and lose five pounds. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the resolutions that you made to be a better person. Remember those resolutions? I'll tell you something I know for sure about your resolutions. They're just like mine. You broke some of them. You set a standard for yourself every day and day after day. You're disappointed with yourself if you're paying attention, if you have a normal operating human conscience because you don't live up to the standards that are in your heart. Have you ever walked away from a situation saying, I shouldn't have said that? You ever walked away from a situation wishing you would have said or done something because that would have been the right thing to do? The law of God is written on the human heart. Here's the good news. Jesus was born under that same law. 
He had moral choices, and he had moral temptations just like I do. In fact, the Bible makes this astonishing claim. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. Whatever bums you out about yourself, whatever stains your conscience, whatever it is that you can't get away from and you wish so deeply you could change and you find yourself unable to understand Jesus was tempted in just that way. Jesus was tempted to lie like I've lied. Jesus was tempted to pride and self-seeking like I am proud and self-seeking. I'll be honest with you. If the truth were known about me, I couldn't be on this stage. I couldn't be anywhere. Neither could any of you. Imagine this, if somehow the technology existed to make a movie of your inner thought life and put that on a screen, and then they made the technology even better to put a voiceover pointing out not only what you thought, but the motivations of even your good deeds. Would you come to see that movie? I might come to see yours. <laughs> You'd probably come to see mine. But if next Sunday they said the inner thought life and the real motivations of Bruce Garner will be on the screens at the Cross Point Church in Huntington Beach, I would be anywhere except here. So would you. That's what it means to be born under the law. Jesus is the only human being to ever walk the earth under the law of God and keep it perfectly. Jesus was this kind of man. He faced people, according to the Gospel of John, he faced people who hated him and said this, who of you accuses me of sin? And they said, nothing. If I asked that same question, accusations would come from everywhere. And I'm not being funny, I'm just being honest. The people who really know me, and it doesn't take long to get to know me, would say, yes, he is a sinner. Every human being who ever lived is a sinner. Everyone violates the law of God. Everyone violates their own conscience. And God, Paul says that God sent forth his son when the fullness of time had come and that that son was born of woman and born under the law. Now it's going to pivot to purpose. Here is why all that happened. Here's why God kept those promises. Here's why God made those preparations. And it had to do with God Think of it this way, paying the price for the first Christmas. See, one of the things about being a grown-up, the celebrations are great, but somewhere in a room is a grown-up thinking, somebody's got to pay for all this. <laughs> this isn't free. The bill will come due. What was God doing at the first Christmas? He was paying our bill. He was bearing our guilt. He was sending his son, born of woman, born under the law, to pay the price for my disobedience and your own. I know that's what Paul has in mind because of the verb he uses next. He says that God did all this to redeem those who were under the law. In the 21st century, I say redeem, and you think coupons, but it had a much bigger meaning in the first century. This redemption word, that was a slavery term. That was the cost of a man's freedom. If a slave somehow could get the money together or have someone kind enough to give him the money, his redemption price could be paid and he could walk off the stage at an auction where human beings were being sold a free man. Paul says that's what God was doing when he sent forth his son. 
Jesus was born from a woman under the law so that he could redeem those who were under the law. In other words, so that you and I could be forgiven, so that we wouldn't have to pay our own debt. And not only that, Paul says next, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's not just freedom, that's family. That's acceptance, that's love, that's more love and acceptance and cherishing and treasuring from God than I can possibly explain to you. That's why the language gets so dense and so lofty in the next few words. And because you are sons, it says God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, what in the world does that mean? That means that when you put your trust in Jesus and you trade your sin for his perfection, the spirit of his son, Holy Spirit, comes into your heart telling you that you belong to God. In fact, teaching you to call God your own father. That's what Abba means. It's an Aramaic word that wasn't translated for some reason. If you think about it, it sounds like baby talk. Can you hear it? Abba. American babies say, Papa. Same thing. Easy sounds to pronounce for little baby lips. Paul is saying something astonishing here. He is saying that when God welcomes you into his family because of the gift of his son, he teaches you to call God your father. And more than that, this shocks even some Christians. He's not only your father. He's not only a king and a creator. He is a father close, loving, humble enough to allow you and invite you and teach you to call him your daddy. Like a little child. Fully loved, fully accepted, with a rich inheritance waiting. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son... If you're a son, then an heir. In other words, someone entitled to the riches of God himself. That's what God was doing during the first Christmas. He was paying the price of admission to your freedom and entrance into his family. See, what the guys on KFI were ultimately driving to, they didn't use this image, but perhaps you've heard it. It invites the listener to imagine that God is sitting up high on a metaphorical mountain, high and holy and removed from people. That much is true. But then if you follow the metaphor, there says there's a lot of roads going around that mountain and they all lead to the same place. So what matters is for you to find a road and for you to get to climbing. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't tell you to start climbing the mountain. See, the trouble with the mountain, if you talk to someone who is sincerely religious and trying to earn their way to heaven, you'll find someone who is either cocky because they think they've done enough or nervous because they don't know how they're doing. The trouble with religion is it won't show you how high the mountain is and it'll never show you how far you've climbed. So you find people who are deluded thinking they're good enough for God or nervous because they know they're not and they have no idea how much more they have to do or whether they can do it. What the Bible tells you is that God came down the mountain to find you. He didn't wait for you to climb. He came to you through the gift of His Son. He invites you to put your full trust personally in Him and in that find that you are free and that you are adopted and you can call God your own Father. That's my final invitation to you. That's all I can do. 
I can tell you the news. I can tell you a great gift is being offered to you, not from me, but from Jesus. I can tell you that God sent, not a religion, but God sent His Son to enter into your experience, to do perfectly what you could not do, to welcome you into God's family, and my sincere invitation to you is that you would move your trust from whatever you believe to trusting Him. To stop trusting yourself, stop trusting try harder, stop trusting resolutions, stop trusting I hope I'll be okay when it's my turn to die, and understand that you can know for sure, not because a preacher said so, but because God sent His Son into human history, and this very well, if your heart will open to Him, this may be your time to say, yes, I believe. And I'd love to give you that opportunity just now. Would you pray with me? Listen, if you're not absolutely certain of your status with God, if you're not completely sure that you have peace with Him, He gave His Son as a gift to you so that your conscience could be cleansed, so that you would know for sure that you belong to Him, that every one of your sins has been forgiven. It's a gift, but like every gift, it has to be received. It can be offered at tremendous price, but if it is refused, it will never be yours. My invitation to you, with whatever trust you're, you have in Jesus, is to go to Him now and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you. Never mind me, never mind the church. It's not about us, it's about Him. My specific invitation for you to, is to tell Him, He's a real person, He's a fact, you can't see him, but he's real. To say, Jesus, I believe the good news. I believe that my conscience is a mess. I believe that I've sinned, and I'm sorry for that. And I'm asking you personally to save me. Give me the grace to believe you and to trust you, and I ask you to give me eternal life. You can pray along those lines. You don't need my specific words. There are no magic words. What there is is a transfer of trust. You moving your trust from yourself to Jesus. Everyone who does that has never, ever in human history been disappointed by Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone will come to me, I will by no means cast him out. That's a promise he made to you. I invite you to take him up on it. And if you do, I would simply ask that you let us know that by using that connection card. Let us know that you're moving toward faith. If you still have questions, let us know about that. We'd love to keep talking to you and keep introducing you to this spectacular person, the Son of God, whose name is Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your Son in my place. I could never in a million years, I could never save myself. Thank you, Lord, that you opened my eyes as you did the eyes of Paul and of many, many, many others to see my sin, to make me feel sorrow over it, and to ask you to save me. I pray if anyone here tonight needs to do that still, that they would right now, that they would move their trust over to you and that they would discover for themselves that you are a marvelous and all-sufficient Savior. I pray that in your name. Amen.